is when we were there in April and uh, they have, you know, the church has only been there a year at that point and, um, you know, Serge's number one prayer request is for leaders and there is a young leader, uh, there is actually, they have a large worship team, it's a wonderful worship team and some young men there and there's this uh, uh, young man there who in April, actually, Greg hung out with the worship team. He went from uh, place to place with them. They played at a birthday party. They played gospel songs at a birthday party, uh, and, and Greg was with them. And about four months after the trip, I asked Serge about one of the folks on uh, their, uh, their worship team, this guy, Aresias, is that his name? And I said, how is he doing? And he said, he said that... After Greg left, it was like he turned into a different man. He just, you know, began devouring the Bible, serving people. And, you know, within a few months, he said that actually there was someone on the worship team, uh, a guy uh, from from Kansas, the, the, the lone American, white American in their church, left back to, um, the, because he was sick, and he was able to take this guy and put him as a worship leader just because of the impact of one life, of, of, of being down there, being loved by Greg, seeing, look, I want to be like him. That's who I want to be. And that's, that's, the, that's our number one goal going down there is to love people. And to love them with our lives. And uh, it was a great, uh, uh, it's just such a great opportunity to do that because really there's, uh, you know, who are we? We're nothing. There's, it's foolish to think that really any of our own talents or gifts can be used in any me- measurable uh, long-term way. But God's love is powerful. He, the Bible says that... Um, we who are alive are always being given over to death for Jesus' sake, that his life will be revealed in our mortal body. And so we can uh, reflect his life. And, and uh, that is going to be the thing that uh, really impacts Haiti. Haiti, I've said this many times, has every charity in the world there. And all of them have failed miserably. Why? There's not an emphasis on the word of God. And uh, that is what is being emphasized there. And... You know, I talked from the book of Nehemiah in Haiti last Sunday on leadership. That's Serge's number one prayer request for leaders. And I personally have a great burden for missions, and our church is about missions and uh, supporting churches and ministries in other countries. Jesus said to, to the disciples, go into all the nations, make disciples. But I must say I, I do have a, a greater burden than missions abroad. And that is my burden for this country. This country for a hundred years was the generator of missions throughout the world. When uh, Alexander de Tocqueville came to, uh, when he came to America in the mid-1800s, and um, he wrote a book about what was different Um, about America, he said, well, there's many things that look different, but the one thing uh, that makes the difference is from the pulpits, they're booming righteousness um, all across uh, the land, all across the land. And and that is, hey, Jose, can you make sure you're outside the door there? and, and that's the one thing that, that makes a difference. And, and you know, uh, Steph and I came up here in New England where uh, churches are closing at a record pace and for pastors to be raised up uh, in this church, uh, uh, I would love to raise up pastors. I would love to raise up uh, leaders. I would love to uh, uh, see throughout New England leaders in the marketplace uh, uh, and people being used right where God uh, has them. And, you know, at the missions, uh, when we were uh, in Haiti at Thanksgiving, at that meal that you saw, the two Haitian pastors, Serge and um, Eddie, after 
the Thanksgiving meal, uh, gathered uh, us for prayer. And the thing that they really had on their heart as a burden to pray for was the United States. In Haiti, the church is concerned about this country. And they themselves recognize that it is America who finances eight, probably 80% of the missions in the world. And yet we are seeing in this country uh, churches departing from the truth. They are uh, emphasizing emotional experiences. They are uh, compromising uh, the services and having seeker-sensitive services to, uh, because they think seeker sense of services at which you don't talk about sin, you don't talk about hell, you don't talk about judgment. They think that'll gather more and more people um, if you do that. Uh, and they're concerned about that. And uh, that was their prayer. You know, God will have his way, um, but I do believe that the Lord, uh, just as he did in Israel uh, over and over again, if we see that in the life of the Old Testament... Uh, he raised up uh, that nation out of the ashes so many times. And he often just used a few people to do that. I believe that uh, uh, will happen again in this country. And so uh, this morning, um, I want to talk about, uh, again, about Christian leadership, as I did last Sunday in Haiti, this time not from Nehemiah, uh, but from the book of Exodus so will you please uh, turn to the book of Exodus and uh, turn to chapter 3. And we are going to uh, speak specifically. You can raise, uh, rise for the reading of God's Word. If you need a Bible, please raise your hand. Exodus chapter 3 and 4. Please rise for the reading of God's word. And we're going to read about the call of God on Moses' life. The call of God on Moses' life. Exodus chapter 3. Moses appears, I mean, rather God appears to Moses in chapter 3 out of the burning bush. And he says to him in verse 6, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. And Moses hid his face, for he was afraid to look upon God. And then in verse 9, Now therefore, behold, the cry of the children of Israel has come to me, and I have also seen the oppression with which the Egyptians oppressed them. Come now therefore, and I will send you to Pharaoh, that you may bring my people, the children of Israel, out of Egypt. Now verse 13. Then Moses said to God, Indeed, when I come to the children of Israel and say to them, The God of your fathers has sent me to you, and they say to me, what is his name? What, I, what shall I say to them? And God said to Moses, I am who I am. And he said, Thus you shall say to the children of Israel, I am has sent me to you. And then it says in chapter 4, just continuing these verses about the call of God on Moses' life. Chapter 4, it says, Then Moses answered and said, But suppose they will not believe me or listen to my voice. Suppose they say, The Lord has not appeared to you. Verse 2, So the Lord said to him, What is in your hand? And he said, A rod. Let's pray. Father, I just pray that you would open up our hearts and minds to uh, your calling on our life this morning. Father, we want to uh, be as those who go into all the world. And Father, we know we can only do that. Father, following your call and in your power with the love and the spirit that you provide. In Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. So in the book of Exodus, uh, it, 
following on the heels of the book of Genesis, uh, the first book of the Bible. Genesis is the book of beginnings. In Hebrew, that's what it means, beginning. In Genesis chapter 1, verse 1, it says, In the beginning, God made the heavens and the earth. In six days, uh, God created all that we see and know in the heavens and the earth, and, and he created the light in the, uh, in the heavens, and, and, he, uh, and he created darkness, and he divided them, and the sun and the planets, the sea, the, the earth, the plant life, the animal life. The sixth day, he created man. In Genesis chapter 3, you see man, Adam, and woman, Eve, falling into sin. And the chapters after that, with breathtaking speed, you see the uh, moral decline uh, that happened after that first sin. Within one generation, they're killing uh, one another. By Genesis chapter 6, it says of mankind that all their thoughts were only evil all the time. All their thoughts were only evil all the time. By the time we reached Genesis 12, the world had completely forsaken God. The knowledge of God had almost been completely cut off. Uh, in Genesis uh, chapter 6, you, you did when, where we read that mankind, of mankind, that all their thoughts were only evil all the time. Uh, there was at least one man at that time, uh, Noah, who was a friend of God. By Genesis chapter 12, there was no one, not a single person. Uh, the entire nation had followed uh, foreign gods, which is another way of saying, really, that they were just following their, their lowest and basest nature had become the ruler of their lives. Now, one might think that at that point, God would uh, wipe out the world completely and start over again, but that is not the heart of God. The Bible says that God, Exodus 34, among many other places, it says that he is merciful and gracious. He's long-suffering and he's abounding in goodness and truth. And where we see failure, God sees redemption. He doesn't see potential. That's what positive thinkers say. He sees redemption. And you go out there in the world and you ask them, you know, what, what was the purpose of Jesus' life? And most of the time you hear something like, well, he came to make good people better. No. He came to make dead people alive. He came to make to, to, to he, he, he comes to give men and women who where there's no opportunity to give them life, dead men and women, life. And, 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 and that's how God is. And when he looked at the world, and by Ge- Genesis chapter 12, not a single person could be called a, a friend of God. He called Abraham, called him away to the land of, of Canaan. Through him, Abraham, God would raise up a nation through which he would introduce himself to the world, th- first through his character, his faithfulness, his power, his goodness, then through his law, finally through uh, his son, Jesus Christ uh, who the Bible says in uh, Colossians uh, 2.9, it says of Jesus, in him, in Christ, dwelled all the fullness of the Godhead in bodily form. And it all started when Abraham was called out in the book of Genesis, the book of beginnings, we read first in Genesis about Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Jacob and his family moved to Egypt eventually, where Jacob's, uh, they started off as a, a motley crew of 70. Over a period of 400 years, they grew to 1.5 million people. They grew so large that the king Pharaoh looked at them and said, wait a second, we need to do something about these people. If we go into battle against a foreign country and these Israelites living in our backyard turn against us, we're doomed. And so he uh, began to fear them and he ordered all the firstborn Hebrew sons to be uh, killed. And uh, it's then that we read in Exodus chapter 2 that the mother of one of these newborn sons puts her newborn baby in the Nile River inside a little ark. The ark went downstream. Uh, 
It was found by Pharaoh's daughter. Pharaoh's daughter's heart went out to it. She took uh, uh, the baby as her own. She hired the child's biological mother, didn't realize she was doing it, but she did, uh, to nurse the child. And so this baby boy raised as a prince of Egypt in the courts of Pharaoh, his name Moses. His mother played a prominent role in his upbringing, and most importantly, that meant that she taught him, listen, that though he was being raised in Pharaoh's court as an Egyptian prince, really, he wasn't an Egyptian at all. He was a Jew. He was a child of the living God. Throughout the Bible, Egypt always a type of the world. If you've opened your heart to Jesus Christ and he now owns the throne of your life, though you live in the courts of the world with all its compromise, all its philosophies, all its misguided ambitions, though you are living in the courts of the world, you are not of the world. And just as Moses had a nursing mother who was also reminding him of who he really was, the Bible says, you have the Holy Spirit who will ever be reminding you that you are a sojourner, a pilgrim, a temporary resident of this world. You're in the world, but not of it. And so Moses, raised in the Egyptian courts, uh, ever always conscious of the fact that he was not Egyptian, he was a, a child of Jehovah, the living God, uh, grew up with the consciousness that all around him, outside the courts, was an entire nation who were living a completely different life uh, than the life he was living. They were living uh, as slaves, slaves to the Egyptians, not only uh, uh, slaves, but cruelly mistreated and oppressed. In the book of Leviticus, it it refers to Israel when they uh, left Egypt as a nation of hunchbacks. And this is uh, because of the physical labor and oppression that they were under. And Moses is growing up realizing that this nation of slaves, that he is one of them. And it was in, during that time that God fashioned in his heart a calling, a calling that he would be used by God to save his people. So Moses received this calling, and when he was 40 years old, he sought to carry out the calling. He saw an Egyptian beating an Israelite, and he killed the Egyptian. How often we get a calling from God in our lives, and we set out in that calling in a way that's completely different than the way God intended. That's what Moses did. We do in the strength of our flesh, in the wisdom of our feeble minds, uh, what God wants to do by His Spirit and in His time. And that's what Moses did uh, when he killed that Egyptian. And as always happens when you or I or anyone who is in Christ tries to go about a calling in the uh, strength of their uh, flesh, it ended in disaster. He was found out. Pharaoh sought to kill him. And then he fled Egypt. He went to the land of Midian, hundreds of miles away, and there he lived for 40 years, isolated from his family, isolated from his friends, isolated from Pharaoh's court, the Jewish people, and everything that he held dear, isolated. The desert, the wind, and a herd of sheep. And the herd of sheep wasn't even his own. It was his uh, father-in-law's. Jethro's, a Midianite. And so some of us uh, go to college and get a BA degree or a BS degree, Bachelor of Arts, Bachelor of Science. Moses got the BSD, backside of the desert. Now, if the truth be told, any man or woman who God has ever used has gotten this degree or has willingly gone through it and come out of it. If you're in this place this morning, this you feel isolated on the shelf, eons away where you think God wants you to be, be encouraged. That's where God brings every single man and woman who he has ever used in the entire record of the Bible.
So one day, after 40 years in the desert, Moses, uh, tending his flock, he notices a bush burning with fire. The bush was not burning up. It was not being consumed. And he approaches the bush in wonder of wonders. The Lord begins to speak to him from the bush. Now, to any of you who have read the Word of God for a while, this should not surprise you. Jesus, very, very clearly, God, the living God, says this. You have this promise from Him. I will never leave you or forsake you. And sometimes we think we're in such a distant place living with the tumbleweeds that somehow God is not in that place. He is back in that place we used to be at at one time. Uh, where everything seemed to be going so well and um, God seemed to be so much a part of our life, uh, but he's not here now. Well, no, he is, and he's speaking from the burning bush, the tumbleweed, or whatever place that you may be in. And so that's um, how we get to chapter 3. We're out of this burning bush, verse 6, chapter 3, Exodus, God says to Moses, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. Verse 9, now therefore, behold, this is God speaking, verse 9, the cry of the children of Israel has come to me, and I have also seen the oppression with them, uh, which the Egyptians oppress them. Come now, therefore, and I will send you to Pharaoh, that you may bring my people, the children of Israel, out of Egypt. And you say, oh, how cool God called Moses. Well, if that um, is the only thing that you think that you're uh, think you're going to get out of uh, this message this morning? No, that's not why I'm standing up here. I'm standing up here to tell you that God has a specific calling on your life. Second Corinthians three six. He has enabled us, you, to become ministers, leaders of the new covenant. 2 Timothy 1.9, God has called us with a holy calling according to his own purpose and grace which he has given to us in Christ Jesus before time began. Romans chapter 12, I beseech you, brethren, by the mercies of God, present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your reasonable service, your calling. That's not only for Moses, that's for every one of you who has opened up your heart to the throne to have Jesus occupy the throne of your life. And, and, and if you're sitting here this morning uh, doubting that kind of thinking, if you're one of those people who say, well, callings are for pastors and evangelists and people like Billy Graham and Moses, well, uh, you're in good company. Read verse 13, chapter 3 of Exodus with me. Verse 13 says, Then Moses said to God, Indeed, when I come to the children of Israel, and I say to them, The God of your fathers has sent me to you, and they say to me, What is his name? What shall I say to them? And God said to Moses, Well, I am who I am. And he said, thus you shall say to the children of Israel, I am has sent me to you. Verse 1, chapter 4, then Moses answered and said, but suppose they will not believe me or listen to my voice. Moses had the calling here. The backdrop of his calling is the desperation of his people in Egypt. They had literally been turned again into a nation of hunchbacks, their backs 
bore the marks of the scourges of the slave master. And it was in that context that God gave him a calling. This nation that we're living in is becoming a nation of hunchbacks. They, with a slave master in this country of humanism, that man, woman is on the throne of their own life, a slave master of lust, A slave master that says, follow the lusts of your own flesh, your own ambition. Pursue pleasure, pursue whatever is right in your own eyes. And we live in a country that's desperate, and you add to that the current environment with a spiraling economy and just a whole new level of desperation. We're in a desperate country. And God is calling you. He is calling you to simply obey the very specific calling that he gives every single man and woman who has been born again by the Spirit of God. And so in verse... One of chapter 4, Moses says to God, but suppose, but suppose, you ever said that to God, but suppose, but suppose God, Bible says that the fear of man is a snare to him. those buts, those supposes in your heart, always born out of fear, they will be a snare to you if you obey them. But suppose they will not believe me or listen to my voice. Suppose they say, the Lord has not appeared to you. God use you, you, with all your failures, with your, pa- with your past, your normal, mediocre, boring life. What if they say to me, the Lord has not appeared to you? Verse 2, so the Lord said to him, what is that in your hand? And he said, a rod. A rod. A rod. A daily reminder of his failure. A daily constant reminder of his life being lived out in mediocrity. A constant reminder that he tried in his own strength to accomplish the purposes of God and now he has left miles and miles away out in the desert to live his life out without anyone ever knowing who he is or having any impact on the things of God. Moses thought he would deliver Israel from Egypt. He had the plan all down. He was going to be commander of chief of the armies of Pharaoh. He was the son of Pharaoh's daughters and aligned perhaps to be Pharaoh. He had the political clout, the education, the power. Uh, he had a great plan. God had put a specific in him in a specific place at a specific time. He was going to deliver the children of Israel, but he set out in his own time and his own abilities, and he failed miserably, and here he is on the backside of the desert with a flock of sheep, not even his own, and a rod in his hand. And here he is after 40 years, and man, he knows this rod really well. 
His rod is almost like a familiar piece of clothing that you put on over and over again. It's actually much more than that. He knew it so well. It had become a part of him. He knew just, you know, he was so so familiar with sort of his grip on the rod. It had become a part of his life. It was almost like a, a part of him, an arm, a leg, an ear, a nose. He knew the rod completely, except... He really didn't know it at all. You know, what was God going to do with that rod? And God is calling you in the same way. He says, what's in your hand? And we look at our lives and there are so many things we're surrounded with and we're just not really excited about them. For you, it may be a husband, maybe a wife, maybe kids, maybe a career. It may be a tool of your trade. Maybe that's a keyboard, maybe that's a hammer. And you're thinking you're surrounded just by the humdrum of life, and we think um, we're so familiar with that thing in our hand. We think we know it. We think we know it better than anyone else in the world. We, we know it better than God. We know that thing in our life. Now remember the backdrop of all this. God had previously asked Moses two questions. We read in chapter 3, verse 11, when God said, I'm going to send you, Moses said, who am I that I should go? God answered, never mind who you are, I'm going to be with you. Then their second question, chapter 3, verse 13, um, uh, there's a second question there. Well, who, will, who should I say that you are? In other words, who am I and who are you? And we teach the Bible chapter by chapter, verse by verse at Calvary Chapel. That's why. So we can figure out who we are and who God is. Because most of us start off completely clueless. Who am I? And by the way, who are you? And what does God say in verse 14 of chapter 3? Thus you shall say to the children of Israel, I am has sent me to you. Who are you? I'm, I am. Sound familiar? John chapter 8, Jesus asked a similar, not the same, but a similar question, says, before Abraham, I am. They picked up stones to kill him. Moses says, who are you? Answer, I am. God says, never mind who you are, I'm going to use you. And if you are asked what my name is, tell them, uh, tell them my name. It's I am. I am. What does that mean? I am. What's that about? I mean, God stopping himself in the middle of a sentence? I mean, what if my, one of my kids went to school and they said, well, what's your name? Well, I am. You know, we'll complete your sentence. And, and you know, that's sort of what you ask yourself when you read this. Okay. Complete your sentence. Well, that's what the rest of the Bible is about. It's about God finishing that sentence. I am. When Abraham went to sacrifice Isaac on the mountain, and Isaac, not understanding what was going on, asked Abraham, where's the sacrifice? Abraham said, what? God, Jehovah, will provide Jireh. I am Jehovah Jireh. I am God, your provider. He finished the sentence. Later on in the book of Exodus, when the Israelites were being attacked by the enemies of God, he said, I am Jehovah Nisi. I am your banner. I am your victory. Please 
Allow in your heart God to complete that sentence. I am your victory. I am your provider. He would say to David, whose soul was unbelievably troubled to the point of death, I am Jehovah Ra. I am your shepherd. He would say to Jeremiah in the midst of a nation uh, uh, where there was just unbelievable, unprecedented wickedness all around him. And, and Jeremiah was so distressed in the extreme despair. God said, I am Jehovah Tesechnagnu. I am Jehovah your righteousness. He would say, God would say to Gabriel, go tell Mary, your son will be named Jehovah Shua. I have become your salvation. In other words, I am Jehovah, your salvation, Jesus. He would go on to say, I am the bread of life. I am the light of the world. I am the way, the truth, and the life. I am the door. The door of what? The door of salvation. You walk through this door into everlasting salvation. So he's telling Moses, I am. And what's he saying? He's saying, I am everything you need to carry out the calling I am putting on your life. So God has a calling on your life, your life. And his name is I am. What does that mean? I am everything you need for you to fulfill the calling that I'm putting on your life. And that's, and that's what he is telling Moses here. So in Exodus chapter 4, verse 1, God says to Moses, What is in your hand? A rod, this lifeless rod, this ordinary thing, this piece of inanimate wood, which is a reminder of the drudgery of life, uh, uh, of, of all his failure. And he's uh, looking at this rod. He was, uh, in, and in a sense, when he's feeling this rod, he's feeling his life, apart from the Word of God, apart from the calling of God, apart from God's plan for his life, that's how he's interpreting this rod. And and what we think of, uh, what he thinks is an ordinary, lifeless, boring thing that God will use to do a mighty work. That rod would turn the Nile River to blood. That rod would turn uh, the earth to lice so that the magicians of Egypt were confounded and declared, uh, surely this happened by the finger of God. That rod would part the Red Sea. That rod would strike a rock and bring forth water for a whole nation. Three million people that rod would bring forth water for. And God's saying, Moses, why are you belittling that rod? (laughs) You think it's a dead stick? No, one day that rod is going to grow flower buds, bring forth branches and almonds. So the Lord said to him, verse 2, what is that in your hand? A rod, verse 3. And the Lord said, cast it on the ground. So he cast it on the ground and it became a serpent and Moses fled from it. You see, Moses had no clue what that rod was about. He fleed. God said to Joshua, what's in your hand? A ram's horn. I know it well. Do you? Through it, the walls of Jericho will fall to the ground when you blow it at my command. God said to Samson, what's in your hand? A jawbone of a donkey. I know it well. No, no you don't. You're going to use it to kill a thousand Philistines and turn the tide of the nation of Israel. God said to Gideon, what's in your hand? A clay jar. I know it well. No, you're not. I'm going to use that clay jar to take a hundred, about a hundred, was it sixty-three, seventy-three people, and defeat tens of thousands of Midianites. God said to David, "What's that in your hand? A slingshot." Well, I know it well. How do you? I'm going to use it to change the course of of a nation. And God said to a small child near the Sea of Galilee, "What's in your hand?"
five loaves, two fish. I know it well. It's not going to feed all these multitudes. Well, you don't know it well. It's, it is going to. It was a blessing being in Haiti because it was just a, a it really was a, a small thing in many ways, but God took ordinary things and we did. Well, put it this way Pastor Serge was in shock when we left. Everything that was done to that house. And he said that actually confessed that he and the other pastor had become uh, discouraged thinking about what they had taken on. It's easy up here for us to say, well, let's buy a house in, in Haiti and let someone else take care of it. And he'd become discouraged. How's all this going to happen? Well, you take what you thought was lifeless and ordinary and humdrum and what you thought, you, you, you know, you thought exactly you knew this thing, this talent, this service and, or, or whatever, and, and God will use it. And it'll do something wonderful with it. For my board in here this morning, though, is for Boston, for New England, for the United States, and for you taking that thing in your life, whatever it is, and allowing God to make what you think is lifeless and inanimate and allow him to just bring life to it, wherever you're at. Think of what would happen if Moses shrank back from the call of God. No, I don't think I'll go back to Egypt. I have a few sheep here. I have my wife, Zipporah. I have what I'm comfortable with. Think about what he would have missed, the Passover night, the parting of the Red Sea, the 80 days on the mountain of God came down, didn't realize it, his face was shining so much, had to put a veil over it, people didn't want to approach him. Being on the Mount of Transfiguration with Jesus Christ. God's calling you and you don't want to miss being placed on the mount of God with him, with Jesus, learning his presence, learning who he is and what he's capable of doing with your seemingly humdrum, lifeless rod. Now with some of you, the rod in your hand may not be a boring, ordinary life. It may be the rod of rebellion. I was reading about, uh, just listening last night, actually, a, a message on the Apostle Paul in Acts chapter 9. He had not a rod in his, uh, he had a rod, you could say, in, in his hand. It was the rod of rebellion. It was papers to go persecute the church. And the rod in your hand may just be the rod of rebellion, the rod that um, so easier will start hitting on a keyboard, going to places where you know that God doesn't want you to go. Or the rod in your life may be a career or a major in school where you're like, oh yes, this rod, I'm going to go and I'm going to make a name for myself. I am going to go and prosper I am going to fit God into my life, but he's going to fit in exactly the way that I decide. Maybe that's the rod in your hand. God's calling you this morning, whatever your rod is, he's calling you to do the same thing that he called Moses to do. He said, cast it on the ground. Cast your rod on the ground. That's what you need to do. It's what I need to do with that rod. And you know something? 
God is waiting for you, for me, for all of us to throw it down right in front of him, whatever's in our hands, whatever we're holding on to. He wants to tell a lost world that they're his through you. He wants to tell people, men, women, children, that they've been purchased at a price. And how can he send someone who is not all of his to spread that message? It has been said that God won't use someone who has an unsurrendered life to go to an unsurrendered world. God will not use uh, an unsurrendered man or woman to reach an unsurrendered generation. We live in an unsurrendered generation, and God wants to send a surrendered body of men, women, and children to it. Why? Why, why is this? Why, why all this stuff about surrender? Because he wants to make your life a message. He wants the words of your mouth to be backed up by the power of your life. And that's what happened to Moses. He not only said to Pharaoh, let my, let my people go, but his words were backed up by the power of a surrendered life. In conclusion, I'd just like to read Exodus chapter 4, verses 19 and 20. It's a wonderful two verses. Now the Lord said to Moses in Midian, Go return to Egypt, for all the men who sought your life are dead. Verse 20, Then Moses took his wife and his sons and set them on a donkey, and he returned to the land of Egypt. And Moses took the rod of God in his hand. The rod of what? The rod of God. Do you realize that thing you have in your hand is the rod of God? Do you realize those talents, those gifts, that those circumstances you're in? It's it's they're gods. They're they have the power of God behind them if you're willing to cast them down. And Moses wrote the book of Exodus. And he was able to write in verse 20 this was not a rod. This was the rod of God. And that's where God wants to take all of us. He wants pastors to be raised up from among us. He wants leaders. He wants people who have a passion for their jobs. to have a passion for Christ generating that passion in the midst of it. He wants moms and dads and husbands and wives casting their rods down and just living surrendered lives so that the power of God will transform the marketplace, the people, the families, the neighborhoods around them. That's where God wants all of us. What an opportunity. What a privilege. The worship team, please come up. One last word. If you don't know Jesus Christ, if you've never invited him to be on the throne of your life, he's asking you to cast down your life right down in front of him. If you've never done that, there will be someone up here after. 
After the service, they can pray with you. It's a simple prayer of faith. A simple, wonderful prayer of faith. The Bible says that we are saved. We take on a relationship with God, not because we're ever good enough to earn that relationship. No one has ever been good enough to earn a relationship with God, but God loves you so much, He wants that relationship with you. If you don't have that relationship, there'll be someone up here uh, to pray after the service. I also just encourage you, if you're, uh, we have caroling today, we're going to the, uh, some, Older folks' homes, some nursing homes, I believe we'll be leaving at, what, 1 o'clock? 1 o'clock? And what a wonderful opportunity just to, to go to a place where, you know, in, in America, you know, one of the shames of this country is trying to hide people as soon as they reach a certain age, certain certain uh, stage in their life. And what a wonderful opportunity to come in and just bring life bring life. We have a number of other things going on during this uh, holiday season. If um, you took a bulletin, please take it home with you and read it carefully. Some exciting things going on. Some wonderful opportunities to uh, go out and, and bring life back to Egypt, back to the world around us. God bless you. Please rise as we close in worship. Is more than enough for all of me for every Thursday.